Please turn in scripture to Ephesians 3. Ephesians 3, I will read verses 14 to 21. Ephesians 3, beginning at verse 14. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And... I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Open our minds and hearts, our affections, to grasp not only what the words in this passage say, but so to absorb them into our very being, that they become part of our lived experience. We remember that the apostles said, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. So we beg of you, from your most holy word, Teach us to pray. And then as we learn to pray such prayers as these, in our own lives, in our own churches, we beg of you to answer such prayers beyond all that we ask or imagine as this passage promises. For Jesus' sake, amen. So, how did you learn to pray? I was brought up in French Canada, so it was a bilingual home. We learned to pray in English and French. And because the English Bible that we used in those days was the King James Version, which was very old-fashioned, Elizabethan English, and the French version was the Louis Sagan, which wasn't quite as old-fashioned, but trying hard. And because we tended to pray using the language of the Bibles that we read, therefore, the prayers that I learned to pray when I was a child were very old-fashioned. Of course, when I was just an infant, pretty soon my parents, who were both Christians, my father was a church planter himself, um, inevitably we prayed childhood prayers. Now I lay me down to sleep and that sort of thing. But when I started praying out loud in the family, family devotions, maybe even at a children's meeting or something like that, I'm sure in English it sounded something like this. 
We beseech thee, almighty God, that in the plenitude of thy great mercies, thou wilt vouchsafe to us the mercies of thy dear son, who hast sacrificed himself on our behalf, that we might walk with thee in righteousness. On the other hand, if you were converted as an atheist at university, and the first time you screwed up your stomach muscles tightly enough to pray out loud in campus Bible fellowship or whatever, it probably sounded like this. Uh, Jesus, we just want to thank you for being here. Now, not for a moment am I suggesting that one prayer is better than the other. I'm merely saying that most of us pray in the fashion in which we have heard others pray. We have learned to pray by copying. Which means that if we've been exposed to people who really are rich, thick, fat in their praying, we've learned to use similar words, whether we really are praying and interceding with God that way or not might be another issue. And if instead we've learned from people who have barely learned to pray themselves, then probably our praying is also just a wee bit stumbly. Because there are many, many things in Christian life and thought and practice which really depend on mentoring of some sort or another, whether planned or unplanned. If you've come from a non-Christian home, how do you have family devotions and make them fun and rich and wonderful? The easiest way is to uh, live for a while with a family where they're doing it right. Or where at very least they'll come along and make suggestions and tell you what they do and fill it in a wee bit. Because a great number of things in the Christian life are caught as much as they're taught. But supposing then what you really want to do above all is to reform your praying in line with the word of God. Where do you start? Well, it's very helpful to have some people who, who are steeped in the word of God and who have framed a lot of their praying along similar lines, transparently. But one of the things you can do for yourself is study the prayers of Scripture. So a number of years ago, I wrote a book on the prayers of Paul. And recently, I've been preaching through a series, Praying with Moses. And obviously, you could do another series, Praying with Daniel. And the series of Praying with David would be endless. But this is merely another way of saying that if the word of God is to shape our lives in our preaching and in our understanding of the gospel and our grasp of what the church is and, and so on and so on and so on and so on, one of the things that it ought similarly to shape is how we pray. So I want to focus on one of the, Paul, of the Pauline prayers, one of the prayers of the Apostle Paul this morning, the one that we have just looked at. This is certainly not the only one. But I want to focus, first of all, on its two central petitions and then on the grounds Paul gives for praying it and then on its final doxology. So first of all, what does Paul ask for in this prayer? Two things. Number one, that God might strengthen us with power through his spirit in our inner being that God might strengthen us with power through his spirit in our inner being. I've taken that right from the text, verse 16. I pray 
that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. So whatever else this is, it's a prayer for power. I pray that he may strengthen you with power. And then one of the things you should do immediately is see how much of this power theme is found in the book of Ephesians. Is Paul praying in line with the development of his thought already in this book? And then you immediately toss your mind back to chapter 1, verse 18. I pray, another prayer of Paul, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That's what he prays for. And then he explains what that power is, so we make no mistake. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Paul is praying for his people that they will experience the same power of God in their lives that actually was exerted when Jesus was raised from the dead. And now he's still praying for power. He prays that God may strengthen us with power through his spirit in our inner being. So, the agent who mediates this power to us in the prayer is the Holy Spirit. And the sphere of operation of this power is what Paul calls our inner being, or in some translations, our inner man. Now, to get a good idea of what he means by that, it is worth looking at one or two other passages where he uses exactly the same expression. For example, in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18, we read these words. Though outwardly, literally in our outer man, we are wasting away, yet inwardly, literally in our inner man, in our inner being. Same expression as here. Yet inwardly, we are being renewed day by day, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporal, but what is unseen is eternal. Every time I take a shower, a few more hairs go down the plug hole never to be seen again. I now have some mild osteoarthritis in my left knee. I've had four pieces of skin taken off my face in the last few years because they're cancerous. The outer man is wasting away. Change and decay and all around I see. Then I remember that my mother died of Alzheimer's. Could happen to me. My father died in six weeks of pneumonia. Could happen to me. It is appointed to all of us once to die. Except for those in the last generation. The outer man wastes away. But the inner man, our inner being, to use the NIV's expression, is the sharpest focus of our existence. It is what is still there even when our body is Put into the grave. If this is strengthened with God's power, the sphere of the operation of God's resurrection power in us, we are well equipped to handle merely external 
vicissitudes. Old age is coming. Sometimes opposition and persecution are coming. But we are well equipped to handle those things if our inner being is strengthened with the resurrection power of Christ. But we may ask two further questions about this petition. Number one, what purpose does it have? There are a lot of people who want power for triumphalistic reasons. Or a Simon Magus in Acts 8 wants power in order to be powerful. And Peter turns on him and says, literally, although you can't say this in English, but it's literally what he says, to hell with you and your money. May you and your money go to hell. So people want power for all kinds of disgusting reasons, condemnatory reasons. But here, there is an explicit purpose. Verse 17. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, you may well say, wait a minute, these are Christians to whom Paul is writing. Doesn't Christ already dwell in their hearts through faith? Why is he praying that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith? But you see, there is a sense in which, if we're Christians, we already know Christ. Yet Paul can say in Philippians chapter 3, Oh, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. So also Christ already dwells within us. Yes, he does. If we're Christians, he dwells in us by his spirit. But the particular verb that is used here is a very strong one, and it has the additional overtone, if you like, of taking up dwelling, establishing his residence there. The first house that my wife and I bought many, many moons ago was a bit of a shanty. The previous owners had a couple of dogs that they rarely let out. When we moved in, apart from the smell, we uh, found dog poo in most of the cupboards. They seemed to be entranced by black and silver wallpaper in the bedroom. The general disrepair around the place was, well, you had to see it to believe it. But it was our home. And gradually, I started tackling jobs. Knocked out one wall with some hideous arch that came out of the wrong century. And stripped it all down and replastered. I remember, to this day, feeling guilty yet. The morning I got up very, very early with an industrial sander and sanded down all my plastering, which, of course, made spectacular mess throughout the entire house, whereupon I took a shower and went to seminary to teach and left my wife in tears. <sighs> yes, moments to be proud of. <laughs> and, but over the years, you know, we did this and we did that and, and so on, and then eventually we traded up. And it's, some people stay in the same house. That an extension, you know. The, the third child is coming along. The fourth child is coming along. You need, you need space for a home office. And, and then pretty soon you look back after 20 years and you say, I like this house. Not bad. It's, it's our house. And everything you see 
you've touched, you've painted, you've put in the double glazing, you've put in the air conditioning, you've added the extra room, you've changed the plumbing, you've changed the wiring, and everything you see is your house. You're comfortable there. So Christ moves into us. And he finds us to be the people of the dog poo in the cupboards. <laughs> the people of the black and silver wallpaper. Pretty disgusting. But he's there to take up residence. And gradually, he transforms us. Until, as it were, he's comfortable there. Because, you see, a house begins to reflect the owner. A house begins to reflect the person who lives there. So what Christ does is take up residence within us and exerting the same mighty power that raised him from the dead, uses that power in our inner being as he takes up residence within us to make us a suitable residence. To use a different figure of speech entirely, but that is equally Pauline. In Galatians 4.19, the Apostle Paul says, how I wish I could be with you, he says, because I, I want to know that Christ is formed in you. Well, transparently, Christ is already formed. Christ is who he is. But the question is whether he is formed in us. It's another way of getting at maturation. Or there's a second question that we should look at as well. The first is what purpose does this exercise of power have? The second is with what measure of resources is this prayer to be answered? It is one thing to ask, what of the supply? Is this a prayer that God is going to answer? Verse 16, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This expression, out of his riches or out of his glorious riches, crops up once or twice, and in every case, it's bound up with what is secured for us in Christ. So, for example, Philippians 4.19, my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. That is, according to all that is secured for us by Christ Jesus. So the question, is there adequate supply, really is, is there adequate supply in Christ Jesus? And what he has secured for us on the cross? Our justification is bound with what Christ has secured on the cross and in his resurrection. Our sanctification is grounded the same way. The prospect of resurrection existence on the last day is grounded the same way. The, the new heaven and the new earth, the home of righteousness, gr grounded the same way. And, and, and all of our growth and conformity to Christ, all of the transformation that we need in order to be Christ's own dwelling place, all secured by the cross. It was paid for. Christ was vindicated. Because of his death work, he bequeathed his powerful spirit. It is part of God's redemptive purpose to bring all things to culmination and, and, and to submission to him in, in a, a, a sweeping move by which he declares himself Lord of the universe. 
to think that there is an inadequate supply would be massively insulting to the Christ who died on the cross. So when we come to pray this prayer, we should remember that its answer is guaranteed on a little hill outside Jerusalem. It's guaranteed by an empty tomb. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. In other words, this is a petition that we may be holy. Salvation is more than forensic justification. It is more than simply being reconciled to God, though it is never less than that. Justification still remains, as Luther put it, the test doctrine of the church. Yet at the same time, salvation is more than justification. It is also the transformation of our entire existence to conformity with Christ, increasingly so in this age and ultimately in transformation to ultimate alignment as perfect as human beings can be made, by, made such by the cross work of Christ. That's the first petition. And so the question, obviously, to ask is this. When was the last time you prayed this prayer? In all our praying for our immediate concerns, an adequate music leader Sunday morning, not too many families leave of Auckland, all of which are good prayers, we need to remember that the central prayers of the Apostle Paul are nestled in this sweeping line of redemptive history, and we pray that that purpose of God in salvation will be worked out in our lives and in the lives of our people. Second petition. It, too, is a petition for power, 17b. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how long and wide and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. In other words, the second petition is this, that we may have power to grasp the limitless dimensions of the love of God. Now, Paul begins this petition by saying we have already been rooted and established in love. Verse 17. And, of course, what he's referring to is what he has already written back in chapter 1, which we looked at two days ago. So we read verse 4 of chapter 1. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Well, small wonder then that Paul says we've been rooted and established in love. But now, although we've been rooted and established in love, he prays that we may have power to grasp how long and wide and high and deep it is. Note that this is not a prayer to have power to love God more. That's a good prayer, but it's not this prayer. Sometimes in contemporary singing, we sing too much about how much we love God. And don't reflect enough on how much he loves us. It takes a great deal 
to grasp the dimensions of God's love. It takes immense, heavenly, Christ-raising love. Do you see, just as the first petition was, at least in part, in answer to the danger of thinking of Christianity as merely forensic, mere justification. So the second is an answer to the danger of thinking of Christianity as merely intellectual confessionalism. We can be passionate about the truth of the gospel and its need in our lives, in our churches, in our country, and still not bask in a self-conscious awareness of the love of God in our lives. I know that there are some cultures and some denominations where there is such an unhealthy emphasis on emotions that clear thinking and accurate exegesis slip out the back door. And then you swim in endless subjectivism and endless introspection and your, law, your, your, your eyes are no longer on the finished work of Christ. I, I know about those dangers. But the inverse danger is that all of our confessionalism and our affirmation of the truth is without profound impact on our affections. Listen to such texts as these. Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. In other words, the contrast means if you're going to get high, don't get high on that Spirit, get high on this Spirit. Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but you? And being with you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and to my portion forever. Galatians 2, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 1 Peter 2, you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Such an experiential way of putting it, isn't it? Not you have intellectually recognized that the Lord is good. It's a great creedal point. No, you have tasted that the Lord is good. Romans 14, for the kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Romans 5, God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 1, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Did you see? There, there is a huge emphasis on the transformation of our affections bound up with the growth of the gospel in our lives. So now Paul prays that we may have power. It takes power to effect this transformation. It's not a question of drumming it up or manipulating it. It takes the power of God, the miraculous power that raised Jesus from the dead. We may have power to grasp the limitless dimensions of the love of God. How, how do you measure the love of God? Three tons? Four acres? What Paul does is use linear measure metaphorically. How long and wide and high and deep it is. 
And, and then he uses paradox. He says that you may know this love that surpasses knowledge. That you may know what outstrips your knowledge. We sometimes say these things in songs and poetry better than in straightforward prose. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the deepest hell. Could we with ink the ocean fill? Or were the sky of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Or in an older hymn, God's love is as shoreless and as endless as eternity. Sometimes this is experienced in suffering when we really do come to an end of ourselves. I went through a period of time when I was a kid that I was quite sickly in and out of the hospital. I almost died once. You don't realize that when you're 10 years old, but I knew I was pretty sick. I lost half a year of school that particular year. I came home from the children's hospital after some major surgery. And during the day, my parents put me downstairs in their bedroom and I sit, sat there and tried to sleep. And One afternoon, I woke up from sleeping endlessly, trying to regain strength again. I was improving. And I looked up and there was my mother sitting and she sat there with her eyes slightly wet with tears. And I said to her, as only a 10-year-old could, Mom, you love me. Which, of course, finished her off completely. She left the room. <laughs> but, but, but you see what's going on? It's not, it's not as if she was doing something different. It's that I was learning to articulate her love for me, however clumsily and stupidly. Nevertheless, that's what I was learning to do. Did you, did you see? So it's one thing to say, God is love. The truth says so. You know, read John 3.16. And it's another to look in the face of God and say, God, you love me. Moreover, and this is why I chose this passage for a conference on churches and church planting. Ideally, this is not to be an individualized experience. Do you see what the text says? And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints, together with all the Lord's holy people. Ideally, this should be working out in a congregation. So that an entire congregation is growing in self-conscious awareness of the love of God for them. A church experience. Moreover, this petition too has a further aim. Did you notice it at the end of verse, 17, at verse 19? So I pray that you have may, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. 
Now that's a Pauline idiom for Christian maturity, to be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. You find something similar said, for example, in chapter 4, verse 13, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. There are various ways of talking about Christian maturity. In other words, Paul presupposes that you cannot become genuinely mature in Christ unless you experience the power of God to bask in the limitless dimensions of his love for us. Christianity is more than creedal. It transforms our affections. Not our love for him alone, but being awash in our awareness of his love for us. And of course, you're not a pastor for very long before you see how this is very often a huge component in the conversion of men and women and in their transformation, especially when you're dealing with people who are broken and shattered, swept under horrible addictions. A woman who has been abused and abused and abused as a child and comes out of it in her mid-30s feeling dirty and guilty and ashamed and unable to enter into normal, human, effective relationships. One of the places where you start is with the gospel, the gospel of God in which God displays his love for us in Christ Jesus and then teaches the individual Christian in the context of the whole church together with all the saints how long and wide and high and deep is this love of God in Christ Jesus to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That woman doesn't have a chance of growing to genuine spiritual maturity unless she learns to wallow in the love of God. We know these things intuitively, even in human relationships. One of my colleagues at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, Perry Downs, has stepped down now to part-time role. He's teaching about a quarter time and so forth. They had two daughters. Both are happily married with their own children. But over the course of the last few decades, they fostered 30 children. Some for a few weeks at a time, some for a few years at a time, sometimes with several at, in their house at once, sometimes with only one or two. The last one, who was a crack cocaine baby, they adopted. One pair of boys that they looked after uh, were, were, was brought to them under emergency circumstances. This pair of boys, they were twins. They, they were three and a half years old, and they had already been in eight different foster homes. And at that point, Perry and Sandy had another couple of foster kids. And when the agency came to them and said, can you take these two? They said, no, our hands are full, you know. We don't, we don't have any more energy for, 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 for two more. They said, well, it's only for six weeks. We've got another family lined up for them. You know, just six weeks. Would you take them for six weeks? So they had their arms twisted and they took them for six weeks. The first night that they were in their beds, Perry went in to see them after they had been in their room, quiet. Imagine, two, three-and-a-half-year-old boys, quiet. Absolutely quiet for half an hour. 
Harry went in, and he found both their pillows with, were soaked with tears, but they hadn't uttered a peep. Eventually, as he found out more about their background, in five of the eight families where these boys had been temporarily fostered, they had been beaten every time they cried. These boys remained with Perry and Sandy for another three and a half years. They took them for testing and screening. The child psychology said that they were irremediably damaged that they would never grow up to normal, emotionally mature human beings. But in the context of the disciplined love of that home, by the time those two boys were adopted into a lovely Christian family when they were seven years old, they were judged within the entire, entirely normal range of, of responses, emotionally and intellectually brought up for the last three and a half years in a context of disciplined love. One went on to be an Olympian. The other teaches high school today. Because you and I know just by reading our newspapers, looking around, being involved in life, working in the inner city, you and I know that all things being equal, and they never are, all things being equal, you do not grow up to be an emotionally mature adult unless you grow up in a context of vast, disciplined love. It just doesn't happen. Now, having said that, you know, all things are not equal. God can reach down into the most broken society and transform people by his grace. And some people are brought up in very secure contexts, yet nevertheless choose to rebel and junk it all over. So I am not preaching a kind of determinism by sociological stratum. Yet all things being equal, human beings do not, on the whole, grow to physical, normal, human maturity apart from the safety and context of disciplined love. What Paul is saying is you don't grow up spiritually. unless you have the power of God to grow, to experience more of the overwhelming love of God for you. The difference, however, in the parallel is this. When Perry and Sandy's two boys didn't have that love, it wasn't the boy's fault. But when we don't experience the love of God, it is our fault. Because we're still so closely trying to hold the reins ourselves. <coughs> Wanting to sing with Frank Sinatra, I did it my way, rather than have thine own way, Lord. Because we don't ask. Isn't that what James says? You have not because you ask not. So the obvious question to ask once again is, when was the last time you prayed this prayer? For yourself, your family, your children, your church. To grasp how wide and long and high and deep 
the love of Christ. Experience it when mere knowledge bursts its categories, then escape the fragile frame of language, reap the richest crop salvation brings, and heap up memories of a sea of love again and yet again cascading o'er us. Men can know no other bliss so rich and deep. Lord God, in love you have established us and rooted us in soil no less fine, not single plants exposed to every gust of wind, but all the saints drink love sublime. Make me to know a creature hewn from sod, the measure of all fullness found in God. So those are the two petitions. But before offering these two petitions, Paul provides two bases for his petitions. Verse 14. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. The first basis is bound up with the for this reason phrase. For what reason? Well, transparently, you have to look at the preceding verses. For this reason, I kneel before the Father. For what reason? What's the basis for this petition? But when you look at the preceding verses, you quickly discover that there's a for this reason at the beginning of chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 1, where Paul starts a sentence and doesn't finish it. He's probably dictating. That's the way he handled most of his letters. So there he says, 3-1, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, dash. Surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you, and then you find out a whole lot more about his apostolic ministry. But that makes it look then as if the for this reason, which generates Paul's prayer, is not found in 3, 1 to 14, but in material before chapter 3, verse 1. And then 3, 1 to 14 is a kind of hiatus. So Paul reasons his way through chapters 1 and 2, and then he says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, and he's about to give his prayer when instead he gives some more explanation of his apostolic ministry, and then he picks it up again, for this reason I kneel before the Father and I pray. That means that this reason is bound up in chapters 1 and 2. For what reason? Well, the whole point of chapters 1 and 2 we've already begun to explore. It pleased God in eternity past in his elective and predestinating purposes to call out a new humanity of men and women from every tongue and tribe and people and nation, Jew and Gentile alike, whom he transformed by his spirit. He redeemed by the blood of the lamb and he made them into one new humanity and is now building them up, building them together, a household for God, chapter 2, verse 19, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. He's building the church. In him, in Christ Jesus, this whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. For this reason, I bow my knee and I pray. In other words, the reason is, these are the purposes of God in the gospel. You learn to pray in line with the purposes of God in the gospel. So, 2.22, in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So Paul prays that you may have power. 
that Christ may dwell in you. But this is the gospel purpose. That God lives in you, that Christ lives in you, that the Spirit lives in you. So to transform you. That is gospel purpose. You learn to pray in line with the gospel purposes that God himself has declared. And they are massively transformative. And then there is a second basis for the petition. The God to whom we pray is supremely our Father. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. The original is very hard to render. I think what it means is that all true notions of fatherhood find their archetype in the heavenly Father. It's not that we project fatherness on God, it's that He's the ultimate Father. So he becomes the archetype of all true fatherness on earth. From whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. The one to whom we appeal. The one to whom we pray. We, we, we pray. The one whom we approach in prayers is our heavenly father. Do you not think he knows how to give good gifts to his children? Jesus says. And finally, the passage is asking God for the immeasurably great. So Paul adds a final doxology which puts the prayer into perspective, 20 and 21. It has two parts. The prayer, this doxology, is addressed to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or think. It's almost as if Paul says, Does this sound like I'm asking for too much? Hmm? You know, you get in a church that's in a bit of a rut, and then you get some enthusiastic preacher getting up and promising all kinds of things. But, yeah, we've been here before. We've had preachers move us and all of that. You know, it'll pass. Get over it. You're just asking for too much. In this life, you cannot have genuine reformation and revival. In this life, you cannot have experiences of God of that order. Just, just get on with the ministry and plug away. And Paul says, your problem is that your vision of God is too small. To him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. According not to our limited imagination, but according to his power that is at work within us, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and will transform us on the last day. God is a much bigger God with much greater desire to pour out these spiritual gospel blessings on us than we are even able to imagine. It's a bit like the question Paul asks in Acts 26 when he is giving his testimony in the imperial court. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? <laughs> it's not a great question. You know, to a secular world, it just sounds so bizarre. God raises the dead. Give me a break. But, but granted, just for a moment, who this God is, 
Why should it be thought incredible that God raises the dead? Small potatoes. Do you realize that for omnipotence, there cannot even be degrees of, guilty, of, 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 um, of difficulty? My dear friend Tim Keller likes to say, for the Christian, optimism is naive. But pessimism is atheistic. We don't adopt some Pollyannish stance in which everything's going to turn out in sweetness and light because we're doing it. We believe in the doctrine of sin. We believe in human depravity. We expect opposition. And Satan is furious because he knows his time is short. Optimism is naive. But pessimism is atheistic, for our God reigns. And finally, the ultimate purpose of Paul's prayer in this doxology is articulated. It is that there be glory to God in the church and in Christ Jesus. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So as we plant our churches, we pray in line with Scripture. And to this ultimate end, that God be glorified in the church, that is, by such massive transformation as is effected by this kind of praying. That God be glorified in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Make my life a bright outshining of thy life that all may see thine own resurrection power mightily put forth in me. Ever let my heart become yet more consciously thy home. So we dare to pray that out of your glorious riches you may strengthen us with power through your spirit in our inner being, that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And we pray that we, having been rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And we dare pray this, that you, our Heavenly Father, may be glorified in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever.